In 2005, while in college at UC Davis, I became fascinated, if not obsessed, with learning about investing. And one author in particular captivated me with stories of traveling around the world and finding economies and commodities to invest in. My passion, for better or for worse, is what's going on in the world and how the world is working and how it's changing. You know, I'm a little nuts. I've been to Uzbekistan more than once. No, I've been to many of these places. I've invested in a lot of these places because it's my passion. Jim Rogers is a legendary investor and prolific author. He was bullish on China and commodities long before they were making headlines and has been sounding the alarm bells for years about the risks associated with growing national debts. The debt is staggering. This debt is gigantic and it's going higher every day. Don't listen to me. Just see what has always happened throughout the history of the world when countries get into this kind of situation. They always peak and go into decline. But where does Jim still see opportunity? If you buy productive agricultural properties in some countries and you pay a good price, you're probably going to do very well and you will have an edge against all the inflation that's coming. I get the honor of sitting down with Jim Rogers for today's Future of Agriculture podcast. Hello, fellow ag nerd. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture. My name is Tim Hamrich, and every week you and I get to hear from the founders, farmers, innovators, and investors shaping the future of the ag industry. And today's episode and every single episode this quarter is brought to you by our quarterly presenting sponsor, the Soy Checkoff. It takes more than hard work to move a commodity. It takes a strategic plan and farmer leaders like you to implement it. And that's your soy checkoff. Whether it's finding new markets for oil and meal, investing in production research to get more from every acre, working with the supply chain to impact your bottom line, having a sound plan delivers results. And you and your fellow soybean farmers are proving it through your soy checkoff. See all the ways the soy checkoff is moving soy forward for you at unitedsoybean.org. And thank you very much to the Soy Checkoff for supporting agricultural innovation and the future of agriculture podcast. All right, now back to today's episode with Jim Rogers. I'm going to first admit that uh, this episode is pretty selfish. I found Jim's books, particularly Investment Biker, Adventure Capitalist, and Hot Commodities while I was in college, and I was sort of trying to figure out myself and where my interests were and where I might like to start my career when I graduated. And I already had an interest in agriculture and international travel and investing, so his books had a huge impact on me. In fact, I decided to start my career in commodities and no small part seriously because of his writing so when i found out recently i'd have the chance to sit down and interview him and get his thoughts on kind of what's happening in the world generally i jumped at it so this one might be just a little bit different from our normal content because jim is looking at broader economic and geopolitical drivers from an investor perspective and not so much as a quote-unquote ag person but i think the perspective is still extremely valuable at least it is to me uh, the other reason this one might be a little bit Bit different is because I couldn't help myself from being just a little bit starstruck by him. So he really had that big of an impact on me uh, at a really formative age. So it was just a really 
big treat for me. But I also, of course, hope you get a lot out of this as well. If you weren't a wannabe investment geek like I was in college, let me give you just a little bit of biographical background. Jim Rogers, a native of Demopolis, Alabama, is an author, financial commentator and successful international investor. After attending Yale and Oxford University, Rogers co-founded the Quantum Fund, a global investment partnership. Uh, during the next 10 years, the portfolio gained 4,200%, while the S&P rose less than 50%. Rogers then decided to retire at age 37. From 1990 to 1992, Jim fulfilled his lifelong dream, motorcycling 100,000 miles across six continents, a feat that landed him in the Guinness Book of World Records. As a private investor, he constantly analyzed the countries through which he traveled for investment ideas, and he chronicled this one-of-a-kind journey in Investment Biker on the road with Jim Rogers. Rogers also embarked on a millennium adventure in 1999. He traveled for three years on another round-the-world Guinness World Record journey, his third Guinness World Record. Passing through 116 countries, he covered more than 245,000 kilometers, which he recounted in his book, Adventure Capitalist, The Ultimate Road Trip. I'm going to drop you into the conversation here where I asked Jim about his decision back in 2007, I believe, to move his family from New York City to Singapore to raise his children to learn both English and Mandarin. He's a man who always acts on his convictions, and he saw the next great economies of the world being built in Asia and wanted to give his daughters the best opportunity to be exposed to that. So I wanted to know how that decision he made 16 years ago played out. Well, I had uh, for many years, I kept telling people that you should teach your children and grandchildren Chinese because it's going to be extremely important in the 21st century. And then, Tim, I had one. Oh, my gosh, what do I do now? So I was teaching her Mandarin Chinese in New York, but it was clear that if I was serious and I wanted her to be really good at it, I was going to have to move to take her to a place where she had to speak Chinese. We tried the Chinese cities. They were very polluted at the time. Uh, they're less polluted now, but still at the time. And Singapore is great. They speak English. They speak Chinese. It's a very well-run country. So here we are. And my girls, I now have two girls, and they both speak perfect Chinese. And I know one reason you wanted, you know, your girls to learn Mandarin specifically is how bullish you've been for a long time on China. China has certainly shown, you know, evidence of what you described, which is, you know, an economy on the rise, uh, but also has had its challenges. Do you remain as bullish uh, on, on China in this uh, century? Well, you know, in the United States, we rose to become the most important country in the 20th century. But, Tim, along the way, we had some horrible setbacks. The worst civil war, I mean, you know, fixed elections, bankruptcies. We had many, many horrible problems. But we became extremely successful, the most successful country in the 20th century. China, I'm sure, is going to have problems. They're having real estate problems right now. So, yes, they'll have problems. I don't know what or when, but everybody has problems. But I don't see anybody else on the horizon that can be as important as China in the 21st century. If you know somebody, please don't announce it on the show. Send me an email. I'm trying to find, you know, who else it could be. But they're the only ones I can see so far. 
All right. Well, you took my next question off the table, which is, who, you know, who are the other countries we need to be watching for? It sounds like we're all looking for, you know, what are the next uh, the, the countries doing it right? Because there's a lot going on in the world that uh, doesn't feel very right. You're right about that. You know, I mean, as I look out the, the window, I, I can certainly see Korea if they ever open the demilitarized zone and Korea's open or at least possibly unified. Korea could be extremely exciting and successful if they open the demilitarized zone. As long as they're at war, it's not a great place. But as I look around, Tim, there are not many places. I don't see anybody that's going to be the next China uh, or the next uh, United States except China. And if you know them, I mean, I see plenty of countries doing well. Vietnam, Uzbekistan is exciting right now. There are countries that are doing good things, but I don't see another United States out there except China. Are, are you concerned at all about about birth rates? You know, in agriculture, part of the bullish case is, you know, growing population, limited resources. Uh, but I have read more and more reports out about, you know, sort of negative birth rates and uh, maybe reaching that peak earlier than than originally expected. Is that a concern in China? And does that concern you economically in general? Well, of course, it concerns me. If, if the world's not going to have any people, we're going to have a problem down the road. Certainly, it concerns me. China has a billion, 400 million people. It's not going to concern me in my lifetime, no matter how low the birth rate goes. We, we have the example of Japan. You know, Japan's population has been declining since 2010, and they're not having babies and they don't have immigration. So, we can watch that to see how it's going to work. There are countries around the world that do have low birth rates now. You know, even Africa, which still has some, many women have five or six or seven children. They used to have nine or 10 or 11 children, you know. So even the birth rate in places that still, you know, the Middle East places, that even those places, the birth rate has declined a lot because people have learned, learned that having children costs a lot of money and a lot of effort and everything else. And so I'm afraid we're going to have lower birth rates for many, many years, but I don't think the earth is going to disappear as far as people are concerned. Look out your window. I think there'll always be people outside your window. All right. Well, that that is a good sign. I know you have been, you know, bullish on on commodities and specifically agricultural commodities for a while now. Uh, is a big part of that your bullishness on economies like China developing, or maybe talk about where you stand today as far as uh, how you see agricultural commodities as an opportunity. Well, I certainly know that the world has is running out of farmers. You know, the average age of farmers in America is fifty eight. In Japan, it's 66. The highest rate of suicide in the UK is agriculture. Oh my gosh, in India, you know, farmers every week, every month are killing themselves. No, so the world has more people in America study public relations, Tim, and study agriculture. So unless something changes pretty quickly, we're going to run out of farmers. Not this month. Don't worry. Don't worry. But it is happening that the world does not have nearly as many farmers as we used to, and that could potentially in a few years, a few decades, lead to serious problems. But the supply-demand is getting out of balance. 
because we just don't have as many farmers anymore. And people still like eating and wearing clothes. Yeah. Well, you have found, you know, great success over the years identifying undervalued commodities, you know, in agriculture right now. Is there any commodity in particular that you see as either undervalued or in tight supply that where the, the price might be, you know, outpacing other commodities? I'm not going to give you a specific name because, uh, Jim, I have found that if, if somebody says buy X, people go out and buy it. They don't know anything about it. They just say, oh, I saw some guy on the Internet. He said, buy apples. And so they buy apples. What I do, to speak specifically about agriculture, but most things, I look to see what is the cheapest, what has not gone up, what has stayed low, and find the cheap stock, the cheap commodities, and start there as my place to look. So I'm not going to give you a name, but I will say that in the agricultural sector, there are agricultural commodities that have not done well, not so well in the last few months. Figure it out, do your research, and you might make some money. And for you know someone in agriculture, you mentioned the, the rising age of the farmer. You know, we haven't even talked about inflation, which is another big one here. The bullish case for the future of agriculture, I think, is there's some fundamentals that are certainly driving that. You know, what advice would you give to someone who didn't come from a farm uh, but wants to somehow kind of capitalize on that? Well, if you want to capitalize on the change in agriculture, the best way is to buy a farm and become a farmer. I'm not going to do that. I told you I'm lazy and it's hard work. But there are a lot of people who like being outside in the sun every day. They like growing things. And so if you know people like that, that is probably the best way to make a lot of money. And it's getting easier to buy farms now because a lot of guys are just retiring or dying or going away. And their kids are moving to Chicago. They don't want to be farmers. you know. So we're finding that there are more farms available now. But don't do it unless you can learn what you're doing. But that's the best way, uh, as far as I'm concerned. You can also buy agricultural companies. You can buy tractor companies. You can buy fertilizer companies, seed companies. If you do your research, you can buy futures. You can buy wheat futures, corn futures. There are many ways to play this if you are willing to do your research and do your homework. I uh, I think it's your last book, Street Smarts, that came out maybe a decade ago. And in that book, you talked about, uh, you know, kind of raising the alarm bells for the, the national debt in the USA, which at that point was, I think, $16 trillion. And today is like double that, somewhere around $32 trillion. That seems just outrageous to me. I know you have voiced a lot of concerns about how that plays out. And I wonder if you could just share with our audience here about, you know, the risk of having the national debt at that level and what we're going to have to do to somehow get us out of this mess. The numbers you cited are actually the on-balance sheet numbers. There are lots of off-balance sheet numbers, veterans' benefits, all the shipping, many things, many things that are not counted in the number you mentioned. So the debt is staggering. This debt is gigantic and it's going higher every day. Now, I'm not trying to scare anybody. Just look at history. Don't listen to me. Just see what has always happened throughout the history of the world when countries get into this kind of situation. They always peak and go into decline. Now, Washington will say, ah, don't worry. We're America. We, we cannot have a, a debt problem. Well, I hope so, Tim. 
But I will tell you, it's a good time to be an old American because I don't have to pay all the debt. My children, who are teenagers, oh, oh my gosh, in their lifetimes, the problems are going to be huge. hundred years ago, Great Britain was the richest, most powerful country in the world. There was no number two. Fifty years later, Tim, they were bankrupt. They couldn't pay their bills. The IMF had to go to London and bail them out so they could pay their bills. That happened in only 50 years. So we're not the first people to face this kind of problem. It's happened many, many times. It's never turned out with a good ending. Yeah. You mentioned your daughters having to be part of the people who are going to pay all that debt. How do you prepare them for what's in store, the sort of volatile future that's ahead? Well, the best way, and I, I don't know. Who knows? You can ask me 30 years if I did it right. But I'm trying to teach them to learn what they love, find their own passions, and then pursue that. Those are the people who are happy. Those are the people who are successful in life because they're happy doing what they do. They don't ever go to work. They wake up every day and have fun. So that's the kind of life I want them to have. And from that, they should be able to deal with and maybe even prosper. And no matter what the world or what life or history has throws at them, in the next 50 or 60 years. And then I would suggest that for everybody. I've certainly told them don't get deep in debt or don't do business with people who are deep in debt because debt has often, nearly always, been a killer for some countries, families, companies. So I'm trying to warn them about the consequences. If you can handle debt, and you, you, some people make fortunes handling their debt well, many more don't. Many more suffer badly from having too much debt. Which, yeah, you know, brings us back to this this conversation about the national debt and how serious this is. Why do you think, because the printing of money has been out of control, especially in the last 20 years, uh, why, why do you think we've avoided complete calamity up to this point? Has it just been because other countries are, are equally having to print currency? Well... Good insight. Yeah, there are many countries that have huge problems. I mean, even Germany, you know, 50 or 60 years ago, Germany was a paragon of virtue. You know, the currency was unbelievably strong. The balance sheets were very strong. And now even Germany has cities that have huge debt problems. So there are many countries in the world that have caught the American fever and are going deep into debt. I mean, Japan, Japan has staggering debt, staggering debt. And who could have ever believed that 50 years ago or whatever? So there are many places which have problems, and that makes the U.S. look quite not so bad. You know, if somebody says, look at all that debt, then somebody else says, oh, look at Japan or look at England, you know, look at Germany, look at these other people. And, and the part of the problem is, I mean, I'm looking around. I don't know which currency is going to come out of all this ahead. I know somebody is. Somebody always does. But it's hard to figure it out now because there's so many countries that have such huge problems. I know uh, when you when you moved to Singapore, Shanghai was also a, a potential candidate on your list to move to. So outside of, of you know, mainland China and outside of Singapore, uh, what what other interesting areas in Asia are really capturing your attention? Well, I mentioned Korea, if and when the D DMZ opens. Vietnam 
is doing very good things now. Uzbekistan has started investing in Uzbekistan. I bought a few shares in Uzbekistan. You know, the Soviets ruined Uzbekistan. They ruined a lot of people, but they ruined Uzbekistan. But the new guys are running, trying to run Uzbekistan the way you would run it, the way I would run it. So there are some countries in the world that haven't been destroyed that are now trying to have a new start, including Uzbekistan, Vietnam. I mentioned Korea, if they open up. There are places out there that might be, I mean, Colombia. I've learned in my investing career that if you buy a country at the end of a war, at the end of a civil war, you usually make a lot of money because everything is cheap, everything is dispressed, and you can usually make a lot of money. Colombia's had a long, horrible civil war, which apparently has come to an end. I mean, there are places out there. Saudi Arabia, to my shock, to my shock, Saudi Arabia is going to use the term opening up, but compared to what it was before, when they wouldn't even talk to foreigners, you know, Saudi Arabia is going through dramatic changes right now. I have not bought any shares. I have no investments in Saudi Arabia, but it's only because I'm lazy. If I weren't talking to you, I'd probably be over here trying to figure out what to do in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> I think that's really interesting. I appreciate you sharing those countries that you're kind of keeping an eye on. I'm curious, you've been in the public eye for, for so long talking about, you know, everyone's asking the same questions I'm asking, right? What's the future hold? What's next? What should we be looking at? Um, obviously, the markets have changed, but I'm curious for you, is there anything fundamental that, that you feel like you've, you've sort of changed your mind on from early books you've written or early uh, media you've done, you know, just things that you feel like you've really changed your mind on? Well, the names have changed, perhaps, but the basic fundamentals, if you have not a lot of national debt and you have a balance of trade surplus, that's been a pretty simple economic factor for hundreds of years. The name is who that, that applies to now. Uzbekistan was not on that list 20 years ago, 50 years ago. But, you know, things do change, but it's the names, the basic principles to buy low and sell high, that's still the same. Yeah. Well, we the U.S. has certainly benefited from, you know, having this perception of, of the sort of the world's reserve currency in a safe haven. Uh, do you see that continuing or do you see that in jeopardy as a result of a lot of these fundamentals we're talking about? Well, unfortunately, the U.S. in Washington, not why not the U.S. Washington, is shooting itself in the foot. If you have the world's reserve currency, you're supposed to be neutral. Anybody can use it for anything. So Washington has changed those rules. And if they get angry at you, they cut you off. They put on sanctions or they confiscate. They confiscate your U.S. dollars. Unfortunately, many people are now starting to say, wait a minute, this could happen to us. Even our friends are saying that. So the world is now searching and Washington is pushing them in that direction, searching for something to compete with the U.S. dollar. I'm afraid the U.S. Washington, as I said, is shooting ourselves in the foot. Because people realize, wait a minute, wait a minute, if we're going to have an international currency, it's got to be neutral. It's got to be sanctions-free. And unfortunately, certainly in the last few years, Washington has changed those rules. And I'm not the only one who knows. Right. 
Well, it strikes me that, you know, their one tool for dealing with the inflation that we're experiencing here right now is is to raise interest rates. And I know a lot of people want to talk about, okay, we've raised them enough and maybe we're going to go back down. Uh, But it seems to me that we probably are just at at the beginning would be my sense of needing to fight inflation. Do you do you anticipate them continuing to need to raise rates um, in order to kind of combat this inflation? Well, the real question is, will inflation continue or will it come back? And my answer is yes, it always has and it always will, especially when you print huge amounts of money. In the U.S., since that's who we're talking about, it's got gigantic debts. In Washington, they spend, it's amazing how much money, especially now they're spending. And if you run up huge debts and you spend a lot of money you don't have, that means somebody has to print money. It has always led to more inflation. I'm not particularly happy about this, but I'm just, I have to look at the facts and look at what's going on. I don't like it. But in Washington, they don't care. If you ask them, if they have an answer, it'll be, don't worry, we're Washington. Well, that makes me worry even more because they're Washington. And I can see what's happening out there. I mean, the United States is the largest debtor nation in the history of the world, and it's skyrocketing. Nobody's cutting it down or anything. It's skyrocketing, even with all this debt. It's terrifying. And, and, you know, in an inflationary period, it's certainly a good place to put some money is, is in hard assets. But I also worry about, about real estate prices. Can real estate prices really support the levels that they're at uh, and the growth that they've experienced? So I don't know, as you look at inflationary periods and real estate prices specifically, is real estate a good investment in an inflationary period like what we're experiencing? Well, real estate, you know, if you look at a map, there's gigantic amounts of real estate out there. Real estate where? What kind of real estate? If you buy a farm in Nebraska, you're probably going to be okay. If it's a good farm, productive land, and you know what you're doing, you'll probably be fine. If you buy some land in Brazil, I mean, you pick the place. If you buy productive agricultural properties in some countries, and you pay a good price, you're probably going to do very well, and you will have a edge against all the inflation that's coming. Or likewise, but if you buy an apartment in Boston, Boston is a wonderful city, but it's a financial city. And if we have financial problems and more inflation and more debt, financial cities usually don't do terribly well in times like that. So, yes, there's a lot of property out there, but you've got to do your homework. I mean, location, 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 good quality property. Productive property, yes, that has always stood the test of time and stood the test of depressions and recessions and probably will again. But you do have to be careful. You, if you buy something and you have too much debt or you're not productive or you have huge negative cash flow, you're going to suffer. Now, thank you for that, Jim. Uh, to shift gears a little bit, you know, if, if um, somebody's listening and they're a farmer in Nebraska, they know, okay, the world is a lot more globalized than it used to be. And I really got to know not just what my local elevator is paying for corn, but some of these kind of global factors that are impacting the price of corn. Are there maybe counterintuitive places that they should be watching for drivers for commodity markets? Or is it really just kind of like, okay, how much supply is there and, and how much demand is there? I'm just curious if there's some more counterintuitive places that they should be looking. 
Well, the supply and the demand is the basic factor. Now, you have to be alert to who has new supply coming on or who has decreasing demand. I mentioned Uzbekistan before. I don't have too many people find Uzbekistan on a map, much less have any idea that Uzbekistan might be bringing new supply to the world. Uh, so you have to be aware of a lot of stuff. You know, Tim, it's not easy getting rich. It's not easy making money. I wish it were. But you always have to be looking around to see where new supply might be coming or where some supply may be disappearing. I mean, this is part of how it works. I wish it were easy. I wish you could look them on page 37 and find the answer. <laughs> there is no page 37. <laughs> well, I certainly have appreciated your your thoughts and your guidance over the years, whether you realize it or not, you know, through your books and through the media that you do, you certainly impact a, a lot of people and, and help clarify, you know, thinking. I, I'm curious, you know, what what keeps you driven to to do things like this? Um, you, you know, I, uh, I'm curious, of like, what what is your internal motivator that keeps you really driven to, uh, you know, to keep showing up for people? Well, I got to pay them rent and I got to pay my bills. But more important is this is what fascinates me. I could not tell you anything about the NBA, the National Basketball Association. I do know what NBA stands for, but I could probably not name three players. But many people love the NBA and basketball or whatever, and they can tell you millions of things. I haven't. My passion, for better or for worse, is what's going on in the world and how the world is working and how it's changing. You know, I'm a little nuts. I've been to Uzbekistan more than once. You know, I've been to many of these places. I've invested in a lot of these places because it's my passion. You know, for better or for worse, if you find something you love a lot, pursue it, pursue it, pursue it. And one thing I want to ask you about, uh, in Street Smarts as well, you wrote about... Um, Japan experiencing what they call their lost decade and that there was likely going to be a lost decade ahead, maybe two in the U.S. Um, can you talk about what that means, a lost decade, and what that might look like potentially if it were to happen in the U.S.? Well, let's talk about the Japanese one first because uh, maybe we can learn from that. History teaches you. You know, the main lesson of history, Tim, is most people do not learn the lessons of history. They ignore history, and if they know history, they say, ah, now it's different, or don't worry, I can do it. We had a president recently who didn't know it much, he didn't know any history, but he thought he was smarter than history. Well, I know I'm not smarter than history, and I know that I can learn something, even if I make mistakes. And as I look around the world, I try to find countries that might be on the rise, as well as countries that might be on the, on the decline. I mean, I own Japanese shares, but I mean, the debt in Japan and the money printing in Japan is beyond comprehension. Listen, five years from now, 10 years from now, there may not be any of Japan, but right now I own the shares because they're buying, the central bank is buying shares and printing money, et cetera. There are no simple answers. I wish there were. I told you, I wish there were a page 37. We just look it up, say, what's the answer? If you know 
the book that's got page 37 in it. Send me an email. <laughs> I'm looking for easy answers. <laughs> what, uh, you are surprisingly open and available to people like me to reach out to, and that's um, really refreshing. I, I'm curious. I, I imagine part of that is because you probably do get every once in a while a decent idea from someone who kind of writes you and says, hey, what about this? Have you thought about this or looked at this? Can you remember a recent time where that's happened, a good tip or a good idea that you got from someone else? No, I will tell you that nearly every time and probably every time that I have listened to someone else, I've lost money. There's something in my genetic being that if you told me to buy X and I bought it, it would go down. I promise you it would go down. And I don't know why that is, but I have learned not to listen to other people for whatever reason. But, you know, many people call me. And Tim, I remember when I was young in the business, a lot of people helped me, talked to me, had lunch with me. You know, I was some dumb kid who barely knew the difference in a stock and a bond. But these guys, older people, experienced people, would talk to me, would listen to me, would question me, would give me pointers. And so I feel a certain amount of obligation to the world to it. If somebody wants to hear me, even if I'm really dumb, I'll let them hear me because many people did it with me, for me, many, many, many times. And I remember, I remember my obligation to whoever caused that. So if you want to speak with me, as you know, you contact me and here I am. But you're part of my major obligation to history and to the world. Well, I, I can speak for me, and I'm sure a lot of other people, that I really appreciate it. I mean, your your books had, like I said, a profound impact on my life. I went into uh, trading physical commodities to start my career in no small part because of, of your writing. And so whether you realize it or not, you know, your impact is is great and substantial. So thank you for that. Well, if you want to send me royalties, I'll send you my address. <laughs> Well, I don't, what's a royalty on on zero? It's not it's not so much, but no, it it it, uh, it it set me up for an understanding of the world and of supply chains and of economics that uh, that I really just didn't have any sense of growing up. So it was it, I certainly am, am very much indebted to you in that way. Uh, before I let you go, last question. Um, you know, you're you're talking to an audience of farmers, people who work in agriculture, ag business, ag technology. Any, you know, kind of final words of wisdom or advice or perspective to share with them about the future of agriculture? You have read that I am very optimistic about the future of agriculture. I'll explain again. Farmers all over the world are dying and retiring. You know, in Japan, there are these farms sitting there empty because there's nobody to farm. Everybody's died. The kids have moved to Tokyo. and Nobody wants to be a farmer. And they won't let in foreigners come to farm these places. But it's not just Japan. It's happening many places in the world. And throughout history, there have been great cycles in world history. At times, farmers have been the richest people in the world. <laughs> Other times, as you know, farmers could barely buy milk, could barely do it, much less beer or something like that, you know. So... As far as I can see, we've had a world that's had a long period where agriculture has not been wildly hot and successful, and that period is changing now. 
Now, agriculture is one of the few areas of the world economy that I see that is changing, going from really bad to really good. I mentioned Uzbekistan. Yes, there are things and places, but agriculture throughout the world, if you ask me, is changing. Someday, all those college kids that are getting MBAs are going to come around and go to agriculture school because, you know, when the brokers aren't driving Mercedes anymore and they're all working for the farmers, then all the young people are going to say, oh, I better be a farmer too. This has happened many, many times in history, Tim, I'm sure you know. And if you ask me, it's happening again. Well, we're going to close out today's episode right there. Thank you very much to Jim Rogers for taking the time. It was surreal to sit down with somebody who I've read so much of his work in the past and really had an impact on my own thinking. Some takeaways from from all of Jim's work, but particularly from this interview is, is you know, it's all about doing your own homework, your own analysis, your own thinking. And uh, it's certainly something that I think has served him well. And I think something we can take away from this. Uh, the fundamentals are, are not always a pretty picture and certainly not right now when it comes to things like the national debt in the U.S. where I live and several other countries around the world and what that might mean for inflation and other economic factors going forward. But uh, certainly a good industry to be in, whether or not you believe that what uh, Jim is saying is is true and history will repeat itself or at least rhyme, as we like to say. Anyway, thank you a lot to Jim. Highly recommend those books that I mentioned at the top of the show that Jim has written. Um, And uh, you can find several interviews and articles about Jim if you if you just Google them or look on YouTube there. Thank you again to Jim for being on the show need to give a special shout out and thank you to dave cliven for making the introduction to jim and making this episode possible really appreciate that dave and thank you to the soy checkoff for being our quarterly presenting sponsor this quarter on the podcast last but certainly not least thank you for your time and your attention i never take it lightly i'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation (music) 